You are listening to episode 47 of the Lewis and Kyle Show with Taylor Pearson. I think like a global pandemic is an interesting example, right? Like something that is a one in a hundred year event or a one in 200 year event where, you know, if you live a hundred year lifetime, there's a reasonable probability that over that that time span, you're going to see one of those events happen. So I think that that's how it's going to work. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. If you're new here, thank you. We're grateful that you chose to listen to our podcast. Lewis and I are young entrepreneurs on a journey sharing the business and life advice we gather from in-depth conversations with our dream mentors. We've had entrepreneurs, CEOs, authors, thought leaders, and more on the show. And our goal in these conversations is to uncover the principles that led to their success and then share their best ideas with you, our audience. In this episode, we talk to Taylor Pearson. Taylor Pearson is a well-respected writer, investment manager, and thinker about cryptocurrency, marketing, and a whole host of other topics. I've been following Taylor's work uh, since my freshman year of college when I first listened to him on a podcast, read his book, The End of Jobs, uh, probably in two days, and have ever since then been a very consistent and diligent reader of his work. In this conversation, we chat about some of my favorite ideas from his writing, including ergodicity, marketing, decentralized trust, and the proof of work mental model, in addition to a whole range of interesting other tidbits he brings up as he answers our questions. We learn a lot from his conversation. He's such a great example of a deep intellectual thinker that I really aspire to model the way I approach the world and I approach answering questions. And I think you all will really enjoy and learn something from this conversation with Taylor. So with that, I'm gonna cut to the audio. Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the Lewis and Kyle show with us. We're very excited for this conversation. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I want to give just a little context for everyone uh, tuning into this episode. Taylor's been on our truly our day one list. You know, when Kyle and I set out in March with the idea of putting together the show and put together a list of people we'd want to get on eventually, you were one of those names on that list. It's there's so many ways we could kind of examples we could share of different ways you're writing and the work that you've put out has kind of affected our lives. Kyle and I met at a startup weekend uh, where I pitched an idea for an e-commerce company called Fat Tales, uh, which is a term nice. that I was only familiar with because of uh, reading your work and I, a lot of my friends have explained the economics conversion traffic matrix to them because that was one of the first really like mental models and frameworks that got me excited about like internet entrepreneurship in, in the first place because I, I saw the power of it and there's just so many stories like that. So we're, we're very excited for this. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so the first question I have for you, it's another concept that you've introduced me to that I find fascinating, uh, but sort of difficult to explain, but I know you have a skill for making those concepts more digestible, which is probably why you spend a lot of time as a writer, uh, is ergodicity. Could you give us a definition of what that is and then expand on the areas of your life you've changed because of your understanding of it? Sure. Yeah. So the, you know, sort of the formal definition is when the time series average and the ensemble series average of a uh, two distributions equal one another. Um, the sort of the best example that I like is um, if you imagine playing Russian roulette, if you played Russian, the average of six people, right? So my, the joke is five out of six people highly recommend playing Russian roulette that it's a fun and profitable game that ends well for everyone. But one out of six people has a very bad time, doesn't respond to the follow-up survey. Um, and so the, the outcome you get, if you play that one time, play that six times as one person, as opposed to six people one times, those don't equal each other, right? The, the average of one is not the average of the other. If you play Russian roulette six times as an individual, you know, you're guaranteed to lose. Whereas if you play um, six times sort of an average uh, group, then, you know, five out of those six people can win. Though if they keep playing, you know, they will eventually get the returns um, of the individual. So, you know, I think it most often gets applied and where I initially heard it is in terms of like investing in the stock market, right? So when I say the such and such asset returns 
X percent on average um, per year. Uh, you know, the challenge is very, very few investors get the returns of the ensemble average, right? Because you don't, you don't live the overall average, you live one point through time, right? If you were born in, um, you know, for example, the, um, the Dow Jones Index from, I might be slightly off on the dates, but 1962 to 1982 uh, was basically flat. It didn't go anywhere over that period. From 1982 to 2002, uh, it went up a bunch. You know, I can't remember how much. So if, if you lived, if you're investing horizon was 62 to 82, you know, you got nothing. It was 82 to 2002, you did very well. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to know that um, sort of a priority. So I think that the sort of investing um, realm is, is maybe the, the easiest one to talk about or where it's most um, applicable. I think you, know, you can also think about in terms of, um, of career stuff. I right? say, well, the average person that does such and such gets this, right? But what is the actual underlying distribution? Is it one person does exceedingly well and nine people get crushed, right? So you're not, I'm making this up, but the average person that goes to some acting class might be, you know, get to star in some major motion picture film, right? Um, or, the, you know, earn such and such amount over the course of their career. But probably what that looks like is, you know, 99 people uh, go absolutely nowhere, you know, end up in different careers or whatever. And one person does um, sort of exceedingly well. So I think, um, like that's another area where it's it's applicable. So how do you apply an understanding of that to um, your life and the way that you live? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think one sort of applicable way is you, I, you have to think about things in terms of um, you know, li- listeners and fat tales. Uh, like, you know, we have, um, I think you, you have, I think, you know, 2019 is an example of this, right? Like if you have a one in hundred year event, right? on average, this event is never going to happen. And thus, mm-hmm. it does not make sense uh, to prepare for that event, right? Because most people, you know, don't have that event, right? Most people have a global pandemic or, or whatever the, um, the sort of thing is, but, you know, you don't live the average of everyone that's ever lives lives. You, you know, you live your life over one um, specific time. So I think, I think one area that it shows up is just like those, um, you know, what Nassim Taleb would call black swan events, those uh, highly improbable, but highly impactful events uh, you want to give more consideration to those, right? Because it only takes, you know, one of those events to the upside or to the downside, right? You know, if you start a company or get a lottery ticket and it goes incredibly well, um, you know, you, you have exposure to that positive asymmetry, but you can also have exposure to that, that negative asymmetry. So I think that's one, um, one of the issues for me is like I do, uh, I'm, I'm a light prepper kind of person. Uh, you know, I think about my investment portfolio, my career, is, is very focused on that idea of, of what are the tails of that distribution and thinking about, you know, I, I'm probably never, you know, I'm probably never going to do this. This is probably never going to matter. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was likely, you know, if you ask someone in whatever last year, if it was mattered, if they ever had N95 mask, like the correct answer was probably not, uh, you know, you probably never need an N95 mask, but uh, if you did need it, you were going to need a lot and the cost was relatively low. Right. And so it's still, you know, if, if you multiply kind of the probability times the, um, the cost, the risk reward still, still makes sense. So I think that's probably just the most general kind of application. Yeah. And that makes complete sense. And I, I was, you know, reading through some of your essays today and I saw one about a bug out bag and, um, sort of during the, um, like pandemic, I was thinking about, you know, preppers and how they're sort of seen as this, like, outcasted portion of society and yet they are they're wrong 99 percent of the time 
but they're going to be wrong. They're going to be right at some point. They're, they're, you're going to be enviable of, of them at some point. And it just so happened that during that pandemic, you know, we're looking around, we're like, wow, maybe they're not that crazy. And that is sort of, I think, a, um, a picture of what you're talking about. You know, they are betting on some event happening in the future and it's low probability, but over a long enough time horizon, something will happen where they seem like the smart ones. Yeah, I think, you know, all these sorts of things, they get, um, you know, sh- marketers or someone sort of takes them to the extreme, right? Like the, you know, the group of proper people that have a $200,000 F-250 set up with, you know, machine guns and 40 years of canned food and ready for the zombie apocalypse kind of thing. Like, you know, that's not even a one in a thousand year event, right? Like that, that that's just, that's so far down the tail of distribution is to be uh, like, you know, it kind of crazy, right? Or like a lottery ticket, right? Just because something is highly impactful and improbable doesn't necessarily mean it, it makes sense, right? But there's a there's a point in that distribution. I think like a global pandemic is an interesting example, right? Like something that is a one in a hundred year event or a one in 200 year event um, where, you know, if you live a, a hundred year lifetime, there's a reasonable probability that over that that time span, you're going to see one of those events happen. So I think that that's how it's going to work. So like, you know, as, as, as you think of one lifetime as, hundred years, roughly, maybe multiply that by 10. So, you know, one, you know, it probably makes sense to think about one in a thousand year type events, right? And I think probably beyond that time scale, then you're just getting into kind of like paranoia and uh, yeah, taking it too far. Yeah, I think that's a, a very interesting, uh, a, a very interesting way of like finding a reasonable heuristic for like a rational stopping point for what black swans are worth taking what level of uh, precautions to, to prepare for. Uh, and one thing that's really, that just made me think of, uh, unfortunately, uh, not in a positive sense, is like Ray Dalio and how he talks about long-term debt cycles and like the United States government. And like, that's an organization that is 300 years, uh, but under your framework of a thousand years, it's like, well, we should, prepare, like empires don't last forever. I don't really know uh, where I was going with that, but that came to mind uh, because I didn't expect you to say a thousand years. So that kind of like took, took me back a second. Uh, another question I have for you, is we uh, have a mutual friend in Eric Jorgensen. We had brought him on a few weeks ago to talk about the publishing of the book. And I told him, we have a lot of, fr- we have a lot of questions for Taylor, but I know you have a more personal relationship with him uh, than we do. And our re- questions just come from reading his writing is what's something that's been on his mind lately that he'd probably be interested in talking about. And he said, uh, the mental model of proof of work is something you've been thinking a lot lately. Can you explain what that is and what excites you about it? Yeah, um, proof of work is, uh, I mean, it was kind of invented by Satoshi Nakamoto, the guy that came up with, with Bitcoin. I'm not even sure if he called it proof of work, but he came up with the concept. Um, and the, the detailed explanation is really detailed and technical. I'm not even sure I can give it, but the general idea is um, the way in which, and you know, people have probably heard these terms, uh, Bitcoin is mined, is that you have these people called miners. And basically what they're doing is they're running these big, uh, very specialized uh, ASICs, basically computer servers that are using tons and tons of industry, uh, tons and tons of energy solving uh, what amounts to like basically a really hard math problem um, that's effectively on just mathematically you can't cheat. There's no way to um, to solve the problem other than just guessing the answer over and over and, and seeing if it works. And the way you guess those answers is with these very expensive um, machines that are using all this very expensive energy. Um, and you know what that does is that in order to uh, you know those miners are compensated when they solve that problem. That's part of how the um, the security of the network is had. And um, as long as long as they there's since there's no way to cheat on that problem, um, it, it creates sort of a uh, uh, a proof of work that is um, uh, makes it basically prohibitively 
expensive to lie or cheat, such that the incentive for Bitcoin, and I think what's interesting about it is that it's actually more economically profitable to play by the rules than to try and cheat, right? That, that, that's what the proof of work system um, facilitated. Uh, and so I think just, you know, within the context of um, computer security and money and, and all that, like that, that's really interesting. But then, um, you know, I thought about it also like recently in, in terms of um, metaphorical like proof of work. Like I think the way in which um, most of our relationships exist are through some form of proof of work, right? If you think of most of your best friends or the people you've uh, kind of had the best relationships with, uh, usually there's some like mutual proof of work uh, that y'all have gone through, right? Like, you know, this person was going through a hard time and, you know, you did some extra stuff to try and, you know, help them feel better or whatever, or, you know, you help them move their apartment to the next place or whatever it is, right? And effectively that's, um, that's unforgeable, right? If you spend your day helping your friend move your apartment, move their apartment, whatever, down the street, like that day is gone, right? You, you've spent that day. Um, and so, you know, it's that, that, that friend can write include like, you know, Lewis or Kyle cares about me enough such that they would effectively burn one day to help me move my uh, apartment. And I think like that's, that's part of sort of how society works, right? Is like you have this, um, this mutual proof of work. Um, and there's a, good, there's a great book called Debt by David Graeber, uh, who sort of talks about this, that uh, historically, um, there's, his case out of arguments is this anthropological reasoning or like humans have this sort of internal debt accounting where like, you know, when you think about the people that you, you know, I think about like my good friends or sort of people I consider part of my community, um, we're sort of, we're, there's a gift culture where we're basically, you know, we're basically going into debt with one another. Uh, right, it's like I'm going to give this person some cookies, and they're going to help me move, and then I'm going to, you know, help their spouse find a job, you know, whatever it is, right? You're sort of doing these favors back and forth, um, and you know, theoretically, you could assign some monetary value to this, but part of what makes it valuable is that you don't assign a monetary value to it, right? It's like you're just sort of freely giving it, and it's this this proof of work that you're offering that, you know, I I care about you as a human being enough to to sort of waste this, um, and so I think that that's like. Uh, that's actually impacted a lot of how I just sort of view my relationships, right? That a lot of it is, um, you know, I could, you, you could go buy cookies at the store and mail them, you know, you could buy them on Amazon and ship them to all um, your friends or whatever, but the act of making the cookies yourself and driving them over and writing a handwritten note uh, is appropriately by them deemed to be a greater sign of your friendship, even though it was maybe less money, you know, money or time, whatever, but like that cost you something. Right, uh, you had to spend the time, you had to spend the effort um, to do that kind of thing. And so I think that um, thinking about that sort of proof of work as it relates to relationships is a really interesting thing that I think about lately. That sort of sends like a, a signal to those people that you are willing to invest that time in them. And that's like a, another mental model to build on top of an existing one that I've read about from your work is like thinking about everything in terms of investing and how, um, you know, that plays into that. It's like everything is equity and debt. It's just an interesting um, perspective. But I know that you are writing a lot and thinking a lot about Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, do you remember what specific piece of information or um, what you're reading where you had sort of your aha moment where you were like, man, I need to pay more attention to this, this Bitcoin thing? Uh, actually, I, I remember it like very specifically. It was like 2014-ish. Um, 
And I was interested at the time, uh, I was interested in Nassim Taleb's work who wrote um, Black Swan and Anti-Fragile or his two most well-known books. Um, and he was an options trader and you know, his whole kind of thing was, uh, a lot of stuff I talk about it is very influenced by him. So you have like fat tails and the distributions and ergodicities, all sort of ideas he's talked about. Um, and I heard an interview with a guy named uh, Winchus Cesares, who was uh, sort of one of the early people that, um, uh, he is an Argentine guy uh, that had, he had, he Silicon Valley guy had sold some company for, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars, had sort of a successful exit, was sort of a big Silicon Valley person. And I don't, he, he had gotten interested in, I think, um, because I, Argentina has had a uh, long history of currency devaluation and, you know, unstable monetary policy, um, such that, you know, most Argentines, off, if they can, they really like to have US dollar bank accounts. I think the inflation rate in Argentina last year was 40%, and that's not historically unusual. So I think he had gotten interested in it because he saw this problem in a way that most people that grew up in the US or Europe probably didn't, right? Like I've never, you know, woken up and had the money in my bank account be worth 50% less than it was worth a year ago, right? It doesn't sort of happen that way in most of the developed world. Um, and I, I lived in Argentina for a year. I did a study abroad while I was in college and I had studied Argentine history. And, um, you know, he was talking about it. And, uh, you know, that, that, it made sense to me. You know, I, I saw how that was a problem. And um, I saw, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's very hard. You know, I knew lots of people in Argentina that wanted to have US dollar bank accounts. But it's very hard to do that. I mean, just because of the regulatory and compliance reasons, you can't just rock up. You can't just call Wells Fargo or Citibank and say like, I want to transfer my Argentine pesos and hold them in a, in a US Wells Fargo account. Um, there, there's a ton of like regulatory and compliance hurdles. And so that's, you know, the idea of a permissionless, um, you know, effectively uncensurable, very difficult to censure um, currency was, I mean, I, I could have seen how people in that sort of situation um, would want that in sort of the value there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, one idea that you frame it as is that you know, you see it as a very useful solution to this potential problem, but you're not so bullish on it to be like, well, this is amazing. It's going to solve all of the world's problems. And a lot of this probably comes from uh, your broader historical understanding and the fact that you're studying, you know, debt, for example, uh, from a anthropological perspective, and it gives you the context of things in history. You frame it as it's the worst form of currency, except for the ones we've tried. Uh, can you kind of explain what that phrase means? Because I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about things like democracy or capitalism, especially for people who kind of are think that everyone is just saying this is amazing going to solve all the problems because i think it's a good way to contextualize tempered expectations and kind of saying this is with benefits but it's not solving everything ever uh, but it's still worth bringing about even though it is also problematic yeah um yeah then there's a, the line is from winston churchill i think he's giving some speech in front of the, the british parliament has said something like that you know democracy is the best form of or the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried um i think i, I think the parallels between like uh Bitcoin or cryptocurrency and democracy uh, are actually like really interesting. Um, and I think the, um, if you think about like why, you know, I guess why is that, right? Like uh, everyone, you know, people living in America, most people living in democracies complain and don't like their governments, right? And if you do whatever the, the average satisfaction survey of American voters with the, you know, the US federal government is like bad, right? Like people are generally unhappy with it. Um, and I, I think if you think about like what's sort of like unique about democracies composed compared to like um, most of the prior form of governments or representative democracy in the US is 
uh, effectively what you've done is you just distributed power, right? So the whole idea of the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch um, is that these are these are checks and balances which are making it uh, effectively uh, very hard for one person or a small group of people uh, to unilaterally do one thing or the other, right? And so like, you know, um, like in the US, everyone's always complaining like, oh, the government never gets anything done. Uh, it's so inefficient. And uh, like, I think I used to think that, oh, that's a bug of the system, right? Like we should make this more efficient. And uh, now I think that's mostly a feature, right? Like that, you know, what that means is that no one person, right? So like when everyone's party is in power, whoever they like is in power, mm -hmm. they wish more stuff would get done. But the, you know, everyone's pretty happy when like the person they don't like is in power, like they can't really get that much, uh, they can't really get that much stuff done. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, democracy is, is inefficient in that sense. You know, the other framework I think of is like, um, you can sort of trade off between robustness and efficiency, right? And they, um, I think like, you know, they're good examples of, you know, dictatorships or small um, sort of autocracies, which has been, you know, you can argue very effective, you know, um, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, uh, Chung Hee Park in South Korea, right? You effectively had uh, a large amount of power country to one person, and like Singapore story is like incredible, right? They went from like a GDP per capita of like $300 to like $30,000 over like 40 years. It's like the fastest economic growth of any country in history. Um, and that's only possible because, you know, you had um, very centralized power. So you have this, this highly efficient thing, um, you know, going back to the idea of like ergodicity, uh, most dictatorships go badly, right? On average, if you were, you know, if you were about to be born into the world and you could pick random country controlled by one person, random country controlled by messy democracy, you probably pick random country controlled by messy democracy. Uh, that's what I would pick, right? Because, uh, you know, on average, it's going to work out better both, you know, over time and, and over sort of an ensemble. Um, and so I think the same, you, know, you can think about Bitcoin um, in somewhat the same way that it's, uh, it's very messy and inefficient in many ways, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's slow, uh, it's expensive, uh, you know, whether it's confusing, uh, you know, most people that have, um, you know, computer science backgrounds or, or particularly cryptography backgrounds, like, it's just like ugly, like it just looks crappy. It's like, this is not like an elegant solution to a problem. Um, but I think, you know, in the same way that like, I think that's perhaps a feature of um, democracy. I think, you know, that's also uh, sort of a feature of Bitcoin, right? It, it, it is inefficient. Um, sort of very much by design. Um, and that, that's not necessarily a bad thing because you get a lot of robustness as a result of that inefficiency. Um, and, you know, having, uh, you know, having a form of currency that has robustness adds like a really interesting dynamic to just the overall um, um, sort of yeah, landscape, how, how currencies are valued, how central banks work, how monetary policy uh, is managed. And then, yeah, I think to your point about uh, it not always kind of, uh, I think there's, uh, my view is everyone is either much too bearish and pessimistic on Bitcoin or much too utopian and bullish on Bitcoin. I, I, I know very few people that I would consider like appropriately weighing its sort of uh, merits. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, yeah, the, you know, Bitcoin moderate, uh, moderates are like the least popular people of all time, right? Because everyone that's super into Bitcoin hates them because they're not super into it and everyone that hates it hates them because they're somewhat into it. Um, but, you know, in my view, that's kind of the, the appropriate thing. And I think, uh, you know, I think, yeah, it's, I think there are, when you think about the role of money and how money functions versus societies, 
Like, I think there's a lot of potential problems with a world in which Bitcoin is very successful, um, mm -hmm. right? Like I think, you know, you have um, uh, the, you know, the uh, uh, I learned that there's a great monetary history book called The Ascent of Money, um, but the, you probably heard the school, uh, the phrasing in school is talking about um, a cross of gold. So this was a, a term, William James Bryan, who was a, um, I think he was a pastor, but he was like an American politician, like late 1800s. Uh, basically what had happened in the late 1800s is that the US dollar was backed by gold um, and uh, all these farmers had effectively taken out debt and they'd had multiple bad years of far crops farming so the, their, uh, their debt was going up, but there was no inflation, right? It was, it was backed by gold. And in fact, um, there was a period in which uh, basically gold discovery was like slower than usual. So it was even more deflationary. Um, mm. You couldn't get enough gold. And so basically these farmers' debts were like piling up. Um, and then you say, you're, you know, you're crucifying us on a cross of gold. The Eastern bankers are, are, um, are crucifying these Midwestern farmers on the cross of gold in the name of holding, um, having this money pegged to, um, to gold, which is sort of another sound currency along the, um, the lines of Bitcoin. And uh, my, my financial history is not that good, but uh, more or less what happened was uh, they ended up finding more gold and, and the sort of the inflation picked up and it ended up sort of resolving itself out. But, um, you know, I, I think that I, the, the social, the political, the, the, the sort of downstream effects of if you did have, if, you know, Bitcoin was very successful, what that would mean for the rest of society is like, it's like not clear to me it's good. I think it's probably bad. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a very messy, very messy question. I agree with that. And I think that it kind of creates an interesting tension between uh, the, like the Lindy effect and the, you know, the existing systems been in place and it's most likely to be the best one that remains because of how long it's been in place uh, versus being not wanting to be dismissive of new solutions as being better either, because there are clear advantages and disadvantages to both uh, in cryptocurrency and the blockchain has a lot of beneficial innovations, uh, which will be realized. And it's kind of just one of those general uh, consistent themes of introducing a new, radically new technology, technology in the, the loose uh, usage of the term is a new idea and a new way of thinking uh, and a new way of just organizing people, not necessarily like the use of computers, even though in this case, I guess it is, uh, just the implications are wide reaching and hard to hard to predict and never uh, without uh, consequences to the pro and the con. But I think kind of contextualizing them both in terms of the decentralization of, of decision-making and the amount of, I think the article that Kyle and I are both referring to use the word like the size of the selectorate uh, yeah. and gradually an increasing selectorate size over time has more often than not proven to be a good thing. Uh, so in an autocracy, you just have a selectorate of one or one group of people and things can be done incredibly quickly. Uh, but if you don't like the people in charge, your way of the way you want things to turn out is not how they're going to turn out. Uh, and there's trade-offs and it's just, if the trade-offs uh, based on everything and all the information available to everyone at the time amount to be a better situation than the starting point that we had before that. Uh, so it's all very interesting. And I think that's kind of why it's a good thing that it's a very, it seems at least the Bitcoin, it's been a, a slow, gradual introduction. Like you said, you got your aha moment was six years ago, and that's given you time to actually uh, sit down and, and look at all the consequences, and the implications and kind of unpack it and determine whether or not it's a good or a bad thing and how you want to position yourself, which I think is the kind of the, the general idea of your upcoming book is like, this thing's coming. What should I do? What do I need to know about it to make informed decisions with all of these in, impending changes? Yeah. I think, that, I mean, I guess that's how it, it, I think the cat's out of the bag, you know, if, uh, 
it's now clear. Yeah, I think it's the the technology is now there such that even if every cryptocurrency business today were to disappear, uh, you know, individuals know that they can create this system uh, that would create you know another one. So I think that you know, the the future is going to have cryptocurrency is going to play some role in uh, the world, and um, so I think it's yeah in that sense you know it is uh, it's worth kind of thinking about and trying to understand maybe what that's going to look like and right it's probably good in some ways and bad in others and it's like messy and not quite what we expect and um yeah i think that's that's sort of my current view on it i think like at the heart of all of that and the the value that the blockchain and bitcoin provides is decentralized trust and um i'm wondering if you can explain for me like what the value of decentralized trust is and how that changes um uh, the interactions between um, us and our world. Yes, and I think you can even um, you get to decentralize trust. But maybe let's just start. You know, I, I certainly write with trust. So there's um, there's really interesting. As I was reading about Bitcoin, I got interested in this field of economics called transaction cost economics. The guy who started it was a guy named Ronald Coase, um, who wrote a paper I think in the 30s, um, 30s, 40s, something like that, um, called the nature of the firm. And the idea was, you know, hey, if like markets are so efficient and people just engage in trade with one another, uh, why do we have these like weird planned socialist economies called firms, right? It's like if you go to work at a big company, you're not like haggling with the person in the cubicle next to you every day. Like, you know, do you not, I'll do this if you do this and we'll, you know, barter or whatever. Um, you know, you're just paid a flat salary and uh, your sort of job changes over time. Uh, and, and his idea was that you have these transaction costs, right? So if you're going to hire someone, you have to, there's a search cost. You have to find this person. Um, there's a negotiation cost, right? You have to, we have to come to terms. We have to agree. This is what the job's going to be like. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're not going to do. Are you happy with that? Um, and then there's uh, an enforcement cost or a trust cost, right? How, if, if you don't fulfill your sort of part of the contract, um, what, what sort of, um, recourse do I have to as either as the employer or as the employee um, to sort of enforce that on you. Um, and so th there's a, a, a pretty good literature of, of like trust in general, uh, you know, countries with strong rule of law tend to have better economic outcomes, right? If you're a company and you can trust that, or you're an individual, you're engaging in you know, an international company or whatever, and you enter a contract in, you know, the US or the UK or somewhere with a, a strong sort of um, history of rule of law, uh, you can do that more confident. The transaction cost of trust is effectively lower, right? Uh, and so, you know, for example, like uh, some pe people start Delaware LLCs, right? Because there's a trust that uh, the law around how entities are governed in Delaware is very well established. There's a tremendous amount of precedent. This is where companies have been, you know, situated for a very, very long time. Uh, and so it effectively reduces, you know, you're, you're taking this variable off the table, right? Like if you're starting a company um, doing social media software management, you don't want to also worry about Wyoming corporate trust law, right? Like that's that's not that's not sort of what you're you're focusing on doing. And so you're sort of um, you can use uh, Adele and you sort of minimize that trust. Um, and so I think in, in general, um, you know, having high levels of trust promotes um, greater economic complexity, right? You can engage in these more sort of complex and, and sophisticated types of contracts, um, whether that's employment or something else, because you trust that there's an enforcement mechanism. Um, to sort of adjudicate those um, those contracts, and so then you know, in the sense of um, sort of like Bitcoin or, or um, decentralized trust, 
you know, the, the, the sort of Bitcoin quip is, you know, third, third parties are security holes, right? So whenever you have one entity that is enforcing um, that trust and some capacity, that entity could always behave in a way in which you don't expect, right? Um, and so you trust, you know, the, all these data, you, know, you trust Yahoo to secure, you as a user had some contract with Yahoo that they were gonna secure your private information while using their servers, they didn't do it. And, you know, that, that becomes sort of the, um, the security hole. Um, and then you kind of have a separate issue of, um, there's a researcher named Nick Zabo talked about this, um, and I'm trying to remember the terms he uses, but basically sort of um, soft versus hard contracts. Um, that you know, when you have a legal contract that is open to interpretation, um, right? So, you know how how you read, right? And this is what people spend you know, spend so much money and lawyers on is like you know, this clause two dot c. I read to mean such and such, and you read to mean such and such, and you have to you know the, you have the judge and the whole court system. You have to you know adjudicate um, what that is. And so you know what part of the interesting value proposition of um, some sort of public blockchain like. Bitcoin or Ethereum is uh, you are effectively uh, eliminating those two issues, right? If you have a smart contract um, that is written into you know, a Bitcoin smart contract, like a multi-state contract or an Ethereum smart contract, you know, like a Uniswap contract or something like that, um, it is going to execute. It is, it's resting on the security guarantees of the underlying protocol, but assuming those hold, it is going to do precisely what the code lays out that it's going to do. Uh, and, you know, when people talk about, you know, it's, it's like smart contract bugs, smart contracts don't have bugs. They always do, you know, to date, you know, they've always done exactly what they, what the code said they were going to do. Right. And so there's, that's the, the way in which that happened wasn't the way in which the person intended. Right. But it wasn't that there was a, a you know, a, a bug per se in the smart contract. It was that the, the person that, that created the smart contract and what they thought it did and what the code actually sort of underlying said didn't quite, um, didn't quite match up or, or failed to match up um, in some interesting way. But I think more generally, I think it, this idea of um, being able to execute contracts in a way where you have this, this trust enforcement mechanism, which is just new, if nothing else, right? It's just a different type of thing than we've seen before. Um, is like a really interesting idea and like what sort of new um, possibilities are, um, are capable as a result of that. And like I, one example I really like is um, this idea of like a vending machine. Um, so you can think of a vending machine as like a very simplified smart contract, right? The contract is you put a quarter in, you press the button, you get a Coke. Uh, and uh, generally you trust vending, I see some vending machines stink, but like generally you trust the vending machine to do that. Um, and part of what that does is it, it enlarges, um, sort of creates a new area of economic opportunity, right? You can have a vending machine in a place you can't have a gas station or a corner store, right? It makes economic sense to have a vending machine at the end of a subway platform, uh, but it doesn't make economic sense to like have a store where you employ people and you have to run electricity, you have to research your things, right? Because it's effectively reduced the transaction cost of trust, right? You have this low cost trust enforcement mechanism, which is, you know, whatever the mechanical thing that works in the vending machine is, that's relatively cheap to create and maintain. Um, and so you have this sort of new, um, this new economic possibility. So I think that's, you know, I think um, sort of the existing projects, like I, I, I don't have um, particularly strong affiliations or uh, love anything, but like I think Uniswap is like a really interesting example on the Ethereum blockchain. I think like the Bitcoin multi-sig 
uh, platform is like a really interesting example of um, this really kind of unlock new areas of um, economic opportunity through this reduced transaction cost of trust. So that was a very circuitous answer to your question, but that that's sort of the way I've been thinking about it. Yeah, uh, super, super interesting. Uh, I think, you know, it really like all human interaction comes down to uh, that level of trust. And I, I think that it applies even more broadly across like all industries and like decentralized autonomous organizations. Like I've heard you talk about the way that work looks in the future with a, with like a, a decentralized upwork where there is trust between that, um, that employee and this contract that they will be paid for this work if they do it. And like, I think, you know, there's interesting applications with that across everything, not just like decentralized finance, but also, um, I'm sort of losing that that line of thought. It's very complex. Uh, For sure, but yeah, logistics, like there's a, there's a ton of different places. Like if you had this contract, yeah, I, I think for sure, I think it's, it's mm-hmm. broad. I think it's, you know, we're still, it's just still so early, right? Like I think the, um, yeah, like decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs are like super interesting. You know, there's this, this big issue is, you know, they call it the Oracle problem, right? But if I hire someone through decentralized Upwork, if I hire someone through Upwork or someone hires me through Upwork, um, Upwork is the third party, which is effectively enforcing that contract, mm-hmm. right? And that's why you pay Upwork because they're um, they're facilitating they're facil- they're facil- they're facil- they're facil- the search costs, right? They have this they have a search network. They have you know their profile that pulls in certain data that's you know being pulled up for certain queries, whatever. And then they you know they do the trust costs, right? Like if someone I, I hire someone on Upwork and they don't do what they say, I can appeal to Upwork and say you know I hired such and such and they didn't fulfill their contract and I'd like to be um, you know, refunded. The, the messy part of that is you can have fraud, right? Someone can, uh, you know, I don't know, do something that makes it look like they did the work without actually having done the work and then present that Upwork as evidence. And so you, could, you know, you could have um, fraudulent behavior and Upwork, you know, has to figure out how to resolve that problem and do it in such a way that's fair, that the trust costs are low enough, right? That I can trust Upwork that this person's not gonna, uh, you know, defraud me uh, and fail to do sort of the thing we agree upon the contract. Um, you know, the benefit Upwork has is, you know, it's, it's a soft contract, right? You can sort of softly, you can judge in the same way the legal thing is you can kind of weigh it. And that, that in some ways that's unfair, right? Because if you get this person at Upwork on a bad day, maybe they rule, you know, they rule against you. If you get this person on a good day, maybe they rule in your favor and, you know, it kind of depends. Um, but, you know, the, the challenge of doing that with, with um, like a, a decentralized thing is how do you, how do you get that data onto the blockchain, right? How do we know that this person did that work, right? And the, the contract is only as effective as the Oracle that's pulling that data mm-hmm. from off the blockchain onto the blockchain. Uh, it, it relies on Oracle, right? So if you, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? If you have bad, uh, bad information coming in, like the contract doesn't sort of do anything. So I, I think that's, there's some fundamental limit there. I, you know, I obviously don't know what it is. I don't think anyone knows what it is. Um, but it seems like there's an interesting space, you know, between here and wherever that fundamental limit is where you could, you could do some cool stuff. I think that whole area uh, is extremely interesting. And I think the way you contextualize, uh, I think that example you gave of vending machines is makes this a lot more real for a lot of people to realize we're already comfortable with these kinds of things happening. Uh, a vending machine is just a box with computer code that facilitates like a very finite amount of transactions, like this amount of money for this output. And really that same uh, concept is just being scaled up to 
happen not in one physical location not in like a four foot by eight foot box it's just that's happening where you're in texas and i'm in las vegas and where you have some agreement and instead of that happening of where box there's just computers verifying uh an agreed upon decision and i think that actually helps me kind of understand the concept i want to transition out a little bit into a little bit of your your writing career and kind of a little bit more of that side of what you're kind of all about because what really interests me in your work is how you've used writing as a platform to launch so many interesting other endeavors between coaching and startup advising and now being kind of a thought leader in the crypto space and you write a lot about the kind of very popularized I feel like I almost hear it on every podcast I listen to that the Scott Adams framework of the skill stack and the overlapping areas of your different interests and your different skills uh, how would you contextualize what that is for you like how would you kind of define the intersection of skills that's given you a unique uh, creative advantage in the type of work that you've created for yourself. Uh, yeah, I feel myself all that all the time. I don't know is my uh, <laughs> my <laughs> most accurate answer. Um, I think I really I think the Scott Adams sort of his ideas. Uh, I think Mark Andreessen was the one I was, he had a blog post where he was talking about right, but it's like you know if you can become the top twenty five percent in three different things, that sort of intersection. It's not that hard to become the top twenty five percent in something, and if you do it in three different things, that sort of intersection is unique and can make you like uniquely valuable. Um, yeah, the other way, there's also, uh, there's another one called the Helsinki bus station theory. Yeah. You get on a bus in Helsinki, like all the buses stop at sort of the same first stop and then they slowly sort of diverge over time. So it's that, you know, if you get off the bus on the second stop, you're kind of in the same place as everyone else. But if you stay on long enough, you sort of end up in this sort of special, unique, um, kind of place. I don't know. So yeah, I guess for me, like, I think, um, Marketing is, you know, I have a big background in marketing. I think that's part of, you know, a lot of the stuff I do. Um, people don't have a big marketing background, so that's probably one advantage I have. Um, writing is probably part of it. I don't think I'm a, a particularly good writer, but I'm po probably top 25% um, kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I, don't, I think, you know, um, just some sort of like general systems thinking kind of thing. Again, like I don't think I'm particularly world-class at that, but like I'm probably 25%, you know, top quartile. Yeah, I, I would consider you very good at writing for the record. <laughs> I'll take it. There you go. Uh, so I actually wanted to ask you one of the questions about marketing because one of the kind of purposes we've built the show as is us learning in public and, you know, consulting with experts at the different things we're trying to do a better job in. And I've been working on marketing for a sports drink startup, the boxes are behind me and you have this article about the three laws of marketing kind of violate them at your own risk kind of connotation could you walk through kind of what those are yeah I might, you might have to remind me it's a funny thing once you, once i write something i tend to you know it's like out of my head you know it's like i've been thinking about it yeah and it's on paper i don't think about anymore um yeah I, I the one so the ones i remember off the top of my head is kind of um there's interesting like I went through a big, I don't know, I read 50 marketing books in two or three years or something. Right? I was like, I was at the point of my career, I just was uh, working at a company doing as like a marketing manager. I just wanted to kind of understand everything. And uh, so I, I sort of read all these books. And then a couple of years later, I kind of had this thing. It's like, uh, all these books really just said like three things, right? Like there's, there, there's a bad, it's not that complex under the hood, right? It's just you're sort of like rehashing these three things um, in a few different <laughs> ways. Um, you know, one is uh, this idea of, um, I initially got the idea from um, a guy named Richard Koch um, called the star principle. That's basically, uh, basically about compound growth, right? That by you want to um, be in a growing industry and you want to be the leader uh, in that industry. And this came out of um, the Boston Consulting Group, which is sort of like McKinsey Deloitte, one of those big consulting firms. And they had uh, sort of a two by two matrix 
of um, you know high growth industry, low growth industry, sort of leading company, lagging company. And so if you're in a high growth industry and you're a leading company, you're a star. If you're in a high growth industry and you're a lagging company, you're a question mark. If you're in a low growth industry and a leading company, you're a cash cow. If in your a low growth industry and a, a lagging company, you're a dog. So the idea was like they were going to companies. It's like, if you have a dog, you want to get rid of it. Um, if you have a cash cow, you want to milk it, but not reinvest in it. If you have a star, you want to focus all your energy on that. And then if you have a question mark, you kind of have to like figure out, is this going to become a dog or a star? And sort of which way is it, um, is it going to go? And so I think a lot of, of marketing is effectively like creating that narrative around, uh, first is sort of having the star, but then creating that narrative around the framing for why you're sort of the leader in that market, right? So like, I think like PayPal's origin story is a very interesting example of this, that, that PayPal was a star in the, you know, initially the eBay power seller payment processing. Like mm -hmm. that was it, they, that's what they were doing. That's where I know, a huge portion, 80% of their revenue um, when they were getting started came from. Um, and so if you were an eBay power seller, you know, you went like, you know, you were working with PayPal um, and that's really the key thing. And that, that kind of transition to e-commerce, right? But like, if you were just the leading payment processor in e-commerce, which PayPal has been for the last um, 20 years or whatever, uh, you, didn't have, you didn't have to out-compete the competition per se, you just had to hold your own, right? You were just riding this wave, right? More stuff was being bought online um, and you were sort of riding it. So that sort of idea of like the star and, and be the one, um, Another one I know was in there was um, this idea of like marketing stamina. Uh, so like I think um, we, you know, companies or individuals, you get bored of your own uh, your own spiel, right? You know, you start saying this is my value proposition or uh, this is what my company does, and uh, you know, after you've been saying it for five years, you're you're kind of sick of it. Um, and so I think a lot of companies quit on. Um, they quit on marketing things that are working because it's boring or because they've just been doing it for a long time and you feel the need to sort of um, sort of change it. But you know, say for example, like the De Beers, the diamond company, their slogan is, you know, diamond is forever, right? It's like arguably the most successful advertising slogan of all time. Um, and it's been their slogan, they came up with it in like the fifties. So like for 80 years, they've just been saying a diamond is forever. And it works great because what it does is Right, it, it uh, reduces the resale of diamonds, right? If you've given someone gives you a diamond ring or diamond earrings or whatever, uh, and you have a say the diamonds forever, you're never gonna resell it. And so they control all the new supply coming onto the market and there's no old supply coming back on in the form of used diamonds. And so they're able to set the price um, and sort of determine the, uh, the value there. So I think that, that was another one. And then the third one you'll have to remind me of. Yeah, I don't know if I have the, uh, the third one offhand, but I think that alone, those are two principles. Sometimes, you know, just hearing two principles and then actually following them is better than hearing three and, and not remembering any of them. So you can I'm, definitely I'm, go find it answer. on taylorpearson.me. You, you'll be so, able to find it if you yes. go searching. There. I'll be able to do the same. Um, but Taylor, uh, so in the, in the early pages of um, the end of jobs, you talk about a period of your life where you lost 100 pounds and you're seemingly unemotional in the book saying that it was like, just say a, um, you set up a system and the system worked, how systems work. Um, but for me, I've, I've lost 50 pounds now twice in my, in my life. And both times it had really outsized impacts on like my interactions with the people around me and just the world in general. Uh, so I was wondering <clears throat> if that had a greater impact on you than uh, sort of I read into within your book. 
yeah, it's a question. Yeah, I think um, surely gave me a lot of confidence. I was about, I would have been, I was maybe 21, 22. Um, and I think, I, yeah, I was sort of at the stage in my, uh, trying to, you know, figure out what I was doing with my life and what I wanted to be. And um, did I want to go to graduate school or did I, you know, did I want to get a job and what I want to do? And um, I mean, it was, yeah, I think it was one of the first things I remember doing. I played team sports, but it's one of the first things I remember doing as an individual that was like really hard uh, that I sort of succeeded at. Um, and, you know, made me feel like I felt good about the results kind of thing. And so I think it gave me a lot more confidence that I could go do other things that seemed hard to me at the time um, and, and be successful at them. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it, it, yeah, it, I mean, it played a huge impact on my life, I'm sure, you know, played a huge impact on my health, I'm sure, same for you. Um, so, no, I think it was, a, it was, it was a, a big deal for me at the time, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think the way that you've talked about in maybe some unrelated articles about weight loss, kind of in the terms of theory of constraints, where if you focus on the right variable, uh, sleep and exercise, instead of trying to over-optimize, you can have uh, dramatic results. But I know we might be running up on your time here. So I just want to ask you kind of one question, sort of themed around the beginning. Uh, we had Kyle and I were putting together the summit, which I think I told you about where we're interviewing 30 hosts about how they've put together their podcasts. And just when one of the conversations kind of offhand, one of the guests asked us who we had coming up and we had mentioned you and he's like, Oh, no way. Like the end of jobs. This is his name is Michael Kennedy. He started the podcast called take talk Python to me, uh, which is now the most popular Python podcast. And he has an online course on Udemy with like 50,000 students and people have come up to him at events and been like, he's changed. Michael's changed their lives. And he told us how he read your book and that's what inspired him in maybe 2012, 2013 to quit his developer job and start this company. So kind of, I have an aspiring writer and kind of in the early stages of the content production world, I'm very curious about how you think of, in terms of your kind of third and fourth order consequences of, of positive influence and just the ways your writing have impacted the world and how many stories come back to you. And if you can quantify and just kind of like what that's like having put out a book and selling 5,000 copies initially, and then people sharing it in tens of thousands over the coming years and just what it's like to kind of not even be aware of so many of the different butterfly effects that you've kind of set in motion with all the different content you've put out there. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. I'll, I'll have to reach out to Michael. That's really cool. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, people reply. I send out an email newsletter every week and people reply to it. And I, I reply to basically everyone that, that replies. Uh, people are always surprised that I like what it said. And that's like, I, I Presumably at some point people get so busy, you can't reply to emails that are saying nice things about you. I don't know how I'm very far away from that point. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. I, I love to hear that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that, that, that book and just in general, probably, um, you know, it's way more than I sort of ever expected, um, which yeah, feels great. Um, but I think, yeah, I don't I guess, you know, I, I, part of what got me into to blogging and writing or into a book is, uh, you know, the same as you. It's that I was reading these other people that, that changed my life, right? You know, I, I can point to blogs and books and all these other things I read that like had a profound impact on me and, um, you know, shaped according to, um, I was really uh, going back to the weight loss thing, um, Rob Wolf and Mark Sisson were these like two early guys and sort of the paleo thing and they were blogging and I was like reading their stuff. I saw their podcasts and learning about nutrition and exercise and, and whatever, and uh, totally changed my life. Um, 
and, and was super inspiring. Um, and so I think I, you know, I just, uh, I wanted to, I thought that was cool. Like I just, I wanted to be a part of that. And um, yeah, so I, I, I think that was, uh, that was sort of part of my um, intention. And I think, yeah, part of what's cool about, about the internet, right, is you do have those sorts of um, uh, asymmetric things, right? You know, you, you never know, you know, probably most people that bought my book never read it. Uh, you know, even fewer, you know, finished it. And then, you know, some very small subset of those, it was impactful in some way that made some meaningful difference in their life. Um, but uh, on those people, I, yeah, it's, it's cool. Like, I think it's, it's awesome and it's flattering and humbling and cool. Uh, that's, that's awesome. I definitely have kind of been in a similar, an earlier stage of that same cycle where I've been deeply impacted by a lot of writers and kind of feel a call to share what I learned along the way and hopefully produce a similar effect. And I think kind of the internet is an earlier example of what you're describing now with uh, the blockchain of how the internet has decentralized the process and removed the transaction costs of distributing an idea where, you know, for, for sure. you to distribute an idea and have 30,000 people read every email you send out is just a transaction cost. That was a barrier for an individual to reach so many people. And we're still just now, you know, even though it's kind of been a thing for 10, 20 years because people can have large followings, but it's still in terms of the paradigm shift it is and like things that are a, an option for humans to reasonably do, the ripple effects of that are just still interesting because we're still in like the early, early stages of what that means and what it's like for an individual uh, of just a turn a casual hobby that, you know, they take seriously and put work into to become something that affects hundreds of thousands of people directly and then so many more uh, indirectly. But this has been a great conversation. We really have enjoyed having you on here. It feels so exciting to bring you on after being kind of in that same position I've described, reading your work for lots of years, being positively impacted by it and being able to ask you the questions I have after years of consuming it. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is super fun. Yeah, if people want to kind of get into your world and start at the, the Taylor Pearson blogging funnel and the, the essays and just the kind of worldview and ideas you share, where, where should we be sending them? Uh, yeah, taylorpearson.me is my website. It's probably the best place. Well, great. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks, Lewis. Thanks, Kyle. Well, that wraps up our conversation with Taylor Pearson. As you could tell from, from that conversation, Taylor is very intelligent. So much so that, you know, during that conversation, I'm just sort of sitting there like, wow, I, I am not even close to on this guy's level. And, and I think that's a really good thing. You know, you, you want to be in conversations and in rooms where you're not even close to the smartest person that's there. And, and that's, that's what was happening during this conversation for me. Uh, one of the cool things that he talked about that I really, really liked um, was the idea of the American democracy and the, um, how it, it may seem really inefficient with all these people, like all these different um, bureaucracies and how it's slow moving and how there's there's blocks and different things that you have to go through and red tape. But really, maybe that was not an accident. Maybe that's what how it's supposed to be. And for me, that's sort of just like highlighted or, or, or made me think about other things in the world that might look not right on the outside, but actually are designed the way they should be. And that's kind of proven in the success that democracy and American democracy has had over the last 300 years. Uh, so I thought that was just really interesting. And then finally, you know, 
as you read through the, the end of jobs and today in 2020, you can sort of see how a lot of his predictions have come true, even in the short five years since its release. And I think that in the same way that he can be seen as sort of a fortune teller or um, really good at seeing the future, uh, it'll be the same with Blockchain Man or The Blockchain Man, his next book, which you should purchase, by the way, or pre-order. Um, and that blockchain really will have a, a massive effect on the way that we live our lives and the way that uh, organization of humans happens. Yeah, I think those were some great takeaways. And I definitely would also recommend purchasing the book or pre-ordering it uh, when it comes out. I enjoyed hearing your explanation just now. And I enjoyed re-listening to the episode about an hour ago when I was editing it. And it's just a consistent theme of Taylor just dropping mind blowers. He rocks your world with the examples he was able to give that allow you or move you to see something that you thought you understood in a completely different way or something that you do not understand in a new way. And now you finally understand it for the first time. And I break down kind of what I'm taking away from this conversation into, into three main lessons. The first is it really did make me want to double down on being a writer just for the pronounced benefits I saw from Taylor and observing the way he thinks about deliberately answering questions slowly, thoughtfully with examples, with a very deterministic and calculated approach to kind of ensure that we both understand it and that we're engaged the whole time. I think another cool part of being a writer that he's really demonstrated was his answer to my last question about the impact of his work over time, the, the downstream consequences of the work that he's put out and the people he's impacted and the people, the people he's impacted have impacted and kind of what position that puts him in and how he's grateful for it. And we'll never know all of the cool butterflies he set in motion, but it knows that it's been a force for good. Uh, and the last is kind of what I was just saying, his, his skill of explanation, I don't think is an accident. I don't think it's something he was born with. And he even himself only considers himself potentially maybe a top 25% writer. Uh, and I think that those skills and his gift for explaining came from the work he did as a writer. And that really is encouraging to me. Uh, I made this same reflection point in a newsletter I wrote a few weeks ago. And this is my second takeaway. The explanation is truly the art of giving examples until one clicks. Uh, there are thought, a, a big number of concepts in this conversation that I semi-understood or thought I would understand or you know would pretend to understand depending on the situation that I was in. And Taylor gave me examples that really made me feel like, oh, wow, I actually understand that now because I have an analogy I can use to relate what I didn't understand in terms that I do. Uh, and so I feel like that's a good algorithm for explaining any concept is just delivering a series of examples until one eventually makes sense to the person you're communicating with. Uh, and then the last lesson came from his question about marketing and how really what matters most is the circumstances and the market. So if you are trying to bring something to the world that it doesn't want, or you're trying to create noise in an industry that's small or dying, you'd be much better off just going with the tide. Uh, Cause if you have, it's like if you had a software company in the internet boom in the 1990s, you just had to have a domain and people threw millions of dollars at you uh, versus if what you're doing is trying to start, you know, like a print media business in the world in COVID, or you're trying to start like an in-person gathering company, you might have the very best in-person event company, uh, but it's 2020 and no one wants that. So it's really about going with the tide uh, and observing what the tide is and then following it. So that's what I take away from this conversation. I am extremely grateful to Taylor for coming on this conversation. Like I explained in this very chair uh, a couple of weeks ago when we recorded this chat, he was on our day one list when Kyle and I first said, let's start a podcast, who we want to get on. Taylor was on that list because we've both been such big fans of this work for, for such a while that it's truly is a treat to have him on. So all I ask of you, if you enjoyed this conversation, I would encourage you to check out another one. Last week, we published a really good chat with Dee Murthy, the CEO and co-founder of Young and Reckless. He's done a ton of interesting work uh, 
because of the interesting network he's built for himself in Los Angeles over the past 20 years. That conversation was awesome. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I would highly recommend it. Otherwise, if you have listened to that and you follow every call to action we ever put out there, uh, we appreciate you. That is all we have for this week. So I encourage you to check back in another week with the next episode and we'll see you, you there. Thanks guys.